Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this time to come before your word as your people. Lord, we all walk into this place with different struggles and different doubts and different questions. But Lord, you uh, meet all of us here. You have promised that when we are gathered as your church, that you are present in a unique way. And so we pray tonight that we would sense that you are here with us, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate truth to us. You have promised us that you will make known the deep truths of God, Holy Spirit. And we pray that that would be true tonight as we look at this, this man, Gideon, who started out so well with courageous faith and uh, lost his way. And uh, Lord, we relate to that. So we pray tonight that we would be challenged, but we would be encouraged. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are a little bit over halfway through our series in the book of Judges. And uh, I, I just have to, I have to say this. I need like um, maybe two or three or possibly four really brave people that want to sit here in the front row. Um, here's why. One, because I'm going to look here a lot. And when I see no one, it's going to distract me. And then two, because two very dear people to us, uh, Vanessa and Garrett, always sat right there. And last week was their last Sunday, and now they're gone. So anyone, yes, round of, come on. This is what I'm talking about. Thank you, thank you. A little bit uh, to help me not be distracted. Thank you, I appreciate that. We, uh, we've been moving through this book of Judges. We've seen this repeated cycle of sin time and time and time again. we got another one. Again, another round of applause for Rob. This is what I'm talking about. We're a family, you know. We... Uh, We've been moving through the book of Judges. We've seen these repeated cycles of the people of God following after God and then turning away from God. We see they do evil in the sight of the Lord as they chase after idols and they get oppressed. And then they reach out to God and cry out for help and then God delivers them. And we've seen last week a miraculous victory with Gideon. God raises up this man, Gideon, who's from the weakest clan. He has no power, no influence. And yet God comes to him and says, I'm with you and you are a mighty man of valor. Gideon is a little bit skeptical, but he trusts in God and he follows God and he is willing to actually demonstrate courageous faith and take risk in his faith as he begins to gather this army of 32,000 men and he heads out to go after the Midianites who have oppressed Israel for seven years, severe oppression. And then as they're there, God says, listen, here's the temptation. You and all the men are going to want to claim the credit and honor for yourself and so you need to decrease the army. And Gideon trusts God. They go from 32,000 to 300. And not exactly 300 of the best men. Men that are a little bit crazy that drink the water from the river like a dog. People that you would never want to attack this formidable Midianite army. And yet this is who Gideon takes to drive out the Midianites with some trumpets, some jars, and torches. And he displays to us that true strength is truly weak. That when you recognize your own weakness and you boast in the strength of God, that's where honor and power is found. But where we left off last week is not the end of Gideon's story because the Midianites have been driven out, but now they have to be conquered. There's going to be an actual battle. There are kings that need to be captured, that need to be killed in order for Israel to be free of their oppression. And so Gideon and his men, his 300 men, go out and they chase after these Midianite kings and their men. And as they're pursuing, they send out messengers to some of the other tribes in Israel that have not kind of engaged in the battle yet. And one of the tribes is the tribe Ephraim. 
And this tribe is one of the most powerful tribes in all of Israel. And Gideon sends messengers and says, join us. We're going to need some more people. We need some experienced fighters. We need your power and your strength and your resources so we can take over Midian. We can capture the kings. And they capture a few leaders. There's some success. There's a few more victories. And then the tribe of Ephraim comes to Gideon and says, listen, we got some beef with you. Why did you not invite us to come in the beginning? Everyone has heard about how you conquered and drove out the Midianites with 300 men. And now you, Gideon, and all of your men are receiving honor and praise. And we want that. See, the truth is, if Gideon were to go to the tribe of Ephraim and say, hey, will you guys join us? We're going to go with 32,000 men. And we're going to go and we're going to drive out the Midianites. There's no way they would have joined. Because Gideon is from the weakest clan. They would have looked at Gideon and been like, what, what do you have? You have 32,000 men. That's not nearly enough. You have no experience. You have no influence. We're not going to just go with you and get killed by the Midianites. But now that the tribe of Ephraim has heard about all the honor and all the glory that is being given to Gideon and his men, they're like, hey, listen, you should have invited us in the first place. So they have some beef with Gideon, and, and he responds as a really strong leader. He's very diplomatic. He's reasoned. He doesn't fight them. He doesn't say, listen, you, you would have never joined. He talks to them, and he says, listen, we're stronger now. We're more powerful now. We're going to be better together. So, like, let's let the past be the past, and let's go together to face the Midianites. There's two kings that we need to get, Zeba and Zalmunna, and they are on the run. And if you join us, we can... Find them and capture them and finally be free of this oppression. And the tribe of Ephraim relents. They say, okay, we're going to join. So they're pursuing, and Gideon is still with his 300 men. And they're chasing after these two Midianite kings. The last two, once they capture them and once they execute them, then Israel will be free of their oppression. It's been so severe. Kicked out of their homes and all their resources have been stolen. They've been starving. They'll finally be free. And so Gideon and his 300 men move into this first town, and the town is called Succoth. They stop there because they've been chasing after the Midianites, and they've captured some, but they're on the run, and they're exhausted. And they go to the leaders in the town, and they say, listen, you, you've by now heard of the victories that God has been bringing us. And we have Zeb and Zalmunna on the run, and we just need some bread. We, we need to eat. We need some sustenance. We need some energy. And... The leaders of Succoth say, no, we're not going to give you any bread. Do you have Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings, in your custody now? No? Then we're good. You read that, you're like, what? what's their problem? Like, this is their chance. This is Israel's chance. But see, the leaders of Succoth are thinking to themselves, if Gideon is not successful capturing these kings, what is going to happen is that they're going to rally the troops they're going to defeat Gideon and the 300 men, and then they're going to come to all of the towns that supported them and kill all of us. So unless you have them in your custody, we're not taking that chance. We don't have the ability to stand up against them. So Gideon moves on to another town, Penuel, and he asks the same request. He listen, we need some bread. We need some sustenance. We've been on the run. We're chasing after these two Midianite kings. And they have the same response. Do you have them with you? No, okay, no bread. It's no soup for you. <laughs> Seinfeld, you catch that? And Gideon is no longer diplomatic. 
With Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, he is diplomatic and he's reasoned. He's like, listen, let's just let the past be the past. Let's do this together. With these two towns that are smaller, he's a very different person. You see, he could never have been aggressive or vindictive or threatening to Ephraim because they would have the capability of actually killing Gideon and his men because they're powerful. But these little towns, Succoth and Penuel, what do they have? So here's what Gideon says to them. Hey, Succoth, because you did not give us bread, when we capture Zeba and Zalmunna, we're going to come back here and we're going to take your leaders and we're going to bring them in the street. And I personally am going to flail your flesh with thorns. And then he goes to the town of Penuel and he says, you see that really beautiful tower that's in the middle of your city that you guys love, that you build. It's an architectural beauty. I'm going to tear that down. It's like Gideon is acting like a completely different person. He's acting vindictive. He's bullying these smaller towns. Essentially, he's looking at them and saying, do you know who I am? Like, I'm Gideon. 300 men, torches, trumpets, God's with me, all the victors, everyone's honoring me, everyone's praising me. And then I ask you for some bread, and you say no? Who do you think you are? You are going to pay for your lack of honor and your lack of respect towards me. And so he continues on, and he does, in fact, capture Zeba and Zamuna. And they have now overtaken the Midianites, and Israel has been freed. And he makes good on his promise. He goes back to Succoth, and he flays the flesh of the men with thorns and briars in the center of the city, and he tears down the tower in Penwell. And then there's a little wrinkle that you read, which is that it says that Gideon was pursuing these Midianite kings out of a primary motivation, which was to restore honor to his family because previously these kings had killed his brother. So this whole time you're thinking, Gideon, he's boasting in, in God and his strength, and he's deferring glory to God, and he's displaying that true strength is truly weak, and he was doing so well. And now he's made everything about himself. He's chasing after these Midianite kings not because he wants to give God glory or to free Israel or to be used as the judge that will be the deliverer of God's people. That may be mixed in there somewhere, but the primary motivation is I'm going to restore honor to my family. And then he begins to treat people who don't show him the respect that he feels entitled to and the praise that he feels entitled to. He treats them like they're beneath him. And he bullies them around. We read this, and if you're like me, you're reading through the story, and you think, what went wrong? <laughs> like last week, all of us were walking out and like, I'm going to be like Gideon this week. And now you're like, I don't know if I like Gideon. He's ripping flesh off of people, tearing down towers. He's a bully. You see, what we see in the life of Gideon is the danger of success. Success can be a dangerous thing, the worst thing for Gideon was the success that God brought him. Remember, God says, here's the temptation, Gideon. You and your people are going to be tempted to hoard honor and praise for yourself. So God decreases the army from 32,000 to 300. 
And for a short period of time, God is, is glorified and honored by Gideon and his men. They're boasting in God. And yet now, over a few victories, Gideon has turned the attention away from God and towards himself. He's made it all about him. He's addicted to success, and he's affixed his identity to his achievements, and he believes that he's entitled to a certain level of praise and honor from other people. You see, success is a dangerous thing. It's not a bad thing. That's important for you to hear. Success is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We all want success in many different areas of our life, in our careers, in our relationships, in our creative pursuits. We have so many different things that we're chasing after, goals that we set. We want success. That's a good thing. But it's a dangerous thing. Because when you achieve success, it can be easy to forget God's grace. Really easy to forget God's grace. Because deep down in, in all of our hearts, every one of us here, we desire to be worshipped like a hero. We're attracted to hero worship, to be idolized, to be praised, to be honored. We, we may kind of deflect that and we maybe don't present ourselves as entitled to it as Gideon does, but we crave it and we want it. And oftentimes when we think about success and when we think about being honored and worshipped like a hero, many of us, our minds go to our careers. We think about the, the goals that we're going to accomplish in our careers. We think about the positions that we're going to attain. We think about the reputation that we're going to build, the achievements that we will have, the financial growth that will become ours. But you see, success and craving after success and desiring honor and worship like a hero is not only found in your career and in your vocational achievements and in your financial portfolio, because success in hero worship is about how other people perceive you. It's how other people treat you, how they view you. And so you can run after and chase after success in a multitude of ways through your social media account, how people view you, how you project yourself because you want people to perceive you and treat you in a certain way and give you a certain level of honor in your friend circle, in your educational program, in your creative endeavors, in your church. The way that people view you and treat you and honor you and praise you is something attractive that we run after. See, all of us here want people to say, you're so smart, you're so disciplined, you're so hardworking, you're so creative, you're so brave, you're so successful. All of us desire that. We prioritize success over surrender. We prioritize success over surrender to God's will. We prioritize success over surrender to God's desires. We prioritize success over surrender to God's glory. Can, can I be honest with you guys? Is that okay? No? Okay. <laughs> Guess not. I'm going to be honest anyway because I, I wrote it in the notes. But uh, I struggle with this. I struggle with prioritizing success over surrender. I love setting goals. I love accomplishing goals. I'm a creative thinker. I love to dream and to imagine, fix problems, and see things grow. And God has been working on my heart over the years to make me aware that I can prioritize 
what I view as my own success over surrender to his plan and to his will and to his glory. And this has been made known to me because I used to have a repeated dream. It's going to sound real weird, and you guys are all going to make fun of me later, but it's okay. I used to have this repeated dream, and it was always a little bit different, but it was the same kind of plot. Here's how the dream went. There was someone in trouble, sometimes someone I knew, most of the time a stranger, and they are going to be critically injured. They're going to be shot or they're going to be stabbed. Okay? You're like, where is this going? Don't worry. And every time in the dream, somehow I'm in the situation and I dive in front of the bullet every time. And I also get shot somewhere where there'll be a cool scar, like on the shoulder, like not too long of a recovery, just the right amount, you know. Or I get stabbed, like I'm like fighting a guy, the assailant, and he stabs me. Like it's always like right here. Don't know why. That would be kind of a cool scar too. I'm all, I think in my dream, I'm like, where would it hurt the least? And I don't know why I think that. That probably is a really bad spot to get stabbed. But I'm, I'm fighting, and I, I will subdue the guy, and I'll hold him, and then the police will come, and then they will, get, they will take him to jail. I will go to the hospital, and then when I'm in the hospital, here's what happens every time. I get interviewed. <laughs> the papers come. There's, a, you know, the cameras. What happened? Why did you tell? I just, you know, I just had to save him, you know? <laughs> Just had to stop, you know. I used to have this dream all the time. What is it? It's my subconscious coming out when I'm asleep, revealing to me that I desire praise, honor, hero worship, success in the eyes of others. And this is what happened to Gideon. He has prioritized Success over surrender. He has forgotten about God. He has forgotten God's grace to him. I mean, he forgot that he was no one and nothing. And he had no ability in and of himself to produce anything that he's experiencing right now. He is the youngest from the weakest clan. No power, no influence. In his mind, no future like this. And yet God comes to him and calls him. And then God equips him. And then God reassures him when he's full of doubt. And then God brings him victory after victory. And yet what has Gideon done? He's acted like this. Thank you, God. But now I want all the attention to me. This was my success. I'm entitled to this honor and to this praise. He forgets about God. And to make matters worse, Israel... After he's victorious and he's, he's conquered, he's captured Zeba and Zalmunna, and they are now free from their oppression, the Israelite leaders come to Gideon and they say, we want to make you king. That's like the worst possible thing to happen, right? We want to make you king. God has installed this system of judges delivering us, but we don't want that anymore. We want you to become king. Verse 22 of our text this evening says that the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us. Not God, you, Gideon, have saved us from the hand of Midian. You have saved us. And because we are so indebted to you and we want to honor you and we want to praise you, we believe that you should be king and we want to establish you as king and then we want your son to rule as king and then your grandson. We want your whole family to rule Israel for as long as as it carries on, 
when you read this, you may think, well, I mean, Gideon may be a pretty good king. He's obviously willing to make some hard decisions like pull down towers and tear skin off the back of people. He has a lot of victories, a lot of influence, a lot of power. But you see, God has established the way in which he's going to rescue and save his people, and that's through judges. He is to be their king, God. And judges will deliver God's people. And the people of God have essentially said, now we don't like that. That's like an old school way. And now we want you to be our king, Gideon, because you, Gideon, have saved us. Not God, you. The question is, what's Gideon going to do? He says to them, verse 23, I will not rule over you. Wow. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Gideon's back. He's back, guys. He says, listen, I see the motives. I see what's going on here. You are forgetting about God. You want me to be your king, and you are forsaking God as king. No. God is king. He will rule over you. I will not, and neither will my son. You see, there's this activation in Gideon, in this moment where his faith really comes forward. He surrenders to God. His success is surrendered to God's plan and God's glory that Gideon knows and believes in. It's such an important reminder to us that we as people are gray. What I mean by that is God's truth may be black and white, and the temptations in the truth of culture may be black and white, but we are never fully following either one of them. We're a mix of all of those things. We're tempted sometimes to believe the truth of culture and the promises and the claims of valuing success and chasing after that and affixing our identity to our achievements. And then sometimes we also are trusting in God and we are giving him glory and we believe in his plan. We're this mixture of black and white. We are gray. And Gideon shows us this. There are times in his life where he is surrendered to God and he trusts God and he displays courageous faith and he boasts in God and gives God glory and accepts his own weakness. And then there are times where he is chasing after success and he is hoarding success for himself and he feels entitled to praise and he is addicted to creating a comfortable lifestyle of leisure and money. And what this, re this reveals to us that we are gray, just like Gideon, is that we need to live a life of constant surrender. The life of faith is a life of constant surrender. And the way that you live a life of constant surrender is that you create a rhythm of surrender in your life. So what does that mean? How do you create a rhythm of surrender? We think you need to think about four things. You need to think about your week, your opportunities, your blessings, and your platforms. So you look at your week and you say, how do I create a rhythm of surrender in my week? Well, just analyze your week. Think about your week. Where are there blocks of time each and every day that follows a rhythm of your week where you are surrendering your schedule to God? Where you're blocking out time to read God's word and to pray and to confess to meditate on God's truth and who he is. Where is that in your week? Is that in your week? Because if it's not, if you're not surrendering your schedule to God, you're certainly not going to live a life of surrender to him. You're going to probably chase after and prioritize success over surrender to God's desires and his plan because you haven't even surrendered your week. 
How do you surrender your schedule and your week to God? Think about your opportunities. Every one of us here has time, which is a valuable resource because we feel overprogrammed. And we have talents. All of us here have natural talents and we have learned talents and we have spiritual gifts if you are a believer in Christ. We have all these talents that we've received and we have time and we have people all the time asking us to engage. To engage in this opportunity, to bring our time into this opportunity and to take our talents into this opportunity. And as you assess all the different opportunities that you're invited into, whether they are opportunities in your career, opportunities in your social life, opportunities are presented in your church family, are you surrendering your time and your talent to God? Are you using the opportunities that God gives you to give him glory, or is it to garner more praise and attention to your own success, your own praiseworthy traits? Are you using your talents as a way in which people can say, look how great you are, instead of surrendering them to God and his glory. Think about your blessings. All of us here have been blessed in many different ways. We've received financial blessing. We've received blessings of resources. We've received friendships and relationships that are blessings to us. How are you surrendering your blessings to God? Or are you hoarding them for yourself? Are you keeping them close Afraid to let them go because if you're honest, your identity is attached to your money. Your identity is attached to your relationships. Your identity is attached to your resources, your possessions, the leisure that you enjoy with those things. Are they surrendered to God? Are they open to his plan and his desires and to give him glory? Are you keeping them for yourself to garner attention and praise? Think about your platforms your career, the relationships that you have, the educational program that you're in with your classmates, even your social media account, your platforms. Are they surrendered to God? Or does no one in some of these different platforms and circles even know that you believe in God? If someone were to look at your, just take your social media for instance. If someone were to look at your social media account, would they even know that you're living a life to give glory to God, surrendered to him? Or is that something you do when you surrender an hour and a half on Sunday night at 5 p.m.? But the rest of these different platforms, you just kind of create an invisible wall where no one can actually know that you're seeking to live a life surrendering to God's plan and his desires and his glory. How do you hold those things open? And use those things to reveal to the world and to others that you're seeking to live a life of surrender. You're gray, and you're going to make a mistake, and you're going to chase after success, oftentimes instead of pursuing God and giving him glory. But how do you open your hands up and give your time and your opportunities and your blessings and your platforms to bring him glory? Because the only way to live a life of surrender instead of prioritizing success is if you actually create a rhythm of it with your time and with your blessings, with your opportunities and your platforms. And Gideon is an example of someone who did not have a rhythm of surrender. 
And so he had moments where he surrendered, but oftentimes he's just pursuing success and hoarding attention and praise to himself. Because here he has this moment, you think Gideon is back. He's like, no, God is going to rule over you as king. I'm not going to rule over you. And then guess what he says in the very next verse? Gideon said to them, but let me make a request of you. Every one of you give the earnings from his spoil to me. I'm not going to be king, but I'm going to live like a king. I'm not going to rule over you, but I want all of your earnings and spoils. Because in Gideon's mind, their victory is because of him. So everything that you've received, all the things that we've, we've fallen into as we've found victory over the Midianites, all of that, I want you to give it to me. They oblige. They give him all the gold, all the beautiful clothes, all the jewelry. They bring it all to him. They treat him like a king. They set him up as a very wealthy, comfortable man, giving him the honor by giving him all of these gifts. And then he does something really interesting. He takes some of the gold and some of the spoils, and he creates something called an ephod. An ephod was a breastplate that the high priest wore in the tabernacle. And the high priest wore this breastplate because it was where the presence of God was made known. And it was beautifully adorned. It had these two really special stones on it, um, Urim and Thummim. And they were affixed on the breastplate like coins where you could spin them. And what the people of God would do is they would go to the high priest who had the ephod. And when they were in a time of crisis, they would inquire of God. And they would ask God questions for discernment, for wisdom, for guidance. And they would essentially spin the stones to get some kind of guidance, believing that God was going to work through the ephod. So Gideon makes an ephod. And he puts it up in his, home in his hometown. And you think to yourself, okay, well, I mean, it's kind of not a very good move to say, give me all of your money and all of your resources and treat me like a king. But at least he made an ephod. Because this is going to benefit everybody. Everybody can go to the ephod. They can get discernment and guidance. And he tells people, you can, it's going to be in the hometown where I'm going to be. You can come. But here's a the problem. There already is an ephod. There's a town called Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle is, and the high priest is there, and he has an ephod. So what is Gideon doing? He's creating a rival place of worship. He said, don't go to Shiloh. Don't travel there. Don't go there and spend your money. Don't invest your time there. I'm making one. It's going to be in my town. You can travel to my town. You can spend your resources in my town. You can come to me for guidance. Don't go to Shiloh. Come to me. God's going to rule over you. I'm not going to be your king, but I want you to treat me like king, and I want you to view me as a king. He is setting himself up for a life where he believes that others will praise him because of his success, and he will be wealthy and live a life of luxury. He is prioritizing success over surrender, and here's the effect we read. It says, in all of Israel poured after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. You see, Gideon has been called by God to be a judge, to bring victory to God's people, and the role of a judge is to turn God's people away from their rebellion back to God, to surrender to God. And Gideon has 
called the people and turned the people to surrender, but not to God, to himself. Surrender to me. The ephod is in my town. I want all of your spoils. I want all of your respect. I want all of your honor. And they had peace when Gideon was the judge, but it was a compromised peace. It was a peace with no worship. It was a peace with no obedience. And what actually takes place after this is that the rebellion and the consequences that Israel will face gets worse and worse and darker and deeper because it was a snare. You think to yourself, how could Gideon do this? How could he prioritize success over surrender in this way? He was doing so well. He was boasting in God. He was displaying true strength as truly weak. And now in like a second, he has turned to chasing after success and desiring hero worship and being addicted to success and money and praise. It's so unattractive. How'd this happen? It's because Gideon's mind was surrendered to God, but not his heart. His mind was surrendered to God, but not his heart. And because his mind was surrendered to God, he believed in God, he trusted in God in his mind, there was moments where he would do the right thing. He would say the right thing. He knew the doctrine of God. He knew who God was, and he believed in God. It's evident in his life. But his heart was not surrendered. He knew God, but he didn't feel God. And so the majority of his time, he's just chasing after success and he's following his heart. And there's moments where he surrenders to God and not to success. There's a verse I was reading in Galatians 2.14 that's true of Gideon. That's this, that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He could talk the talk. He knew all the right words to say to sound like he's a person of faith, but his walk did not match his talk so often because his heart was not surrendered to God. His mind was, but not his heart. He had no rhythm of surrender. When you assess Gideon, and when you're really honest, do you resonate with that? Your mind being surrendered to God, believing in who God is, trusting in God, especially in moments where you feel really weak, like Gideon did. When he had nothing, it was easy to trust in God. His mind said, this is, I mean, what else do you have? But once he started getting success and compliments and praise and affirmation, he started to follow his heart, which wanted success more than anything, and honor and praise from others. Do you spend a lot of your time seeking to create an ephod for yourself? Taking the blessings and the opportunities and the time and the platforms that God has given you and you use it to create an ephod. Something that will attract people to you. To praise you. To seek guidance from you. To honor you. To bring their resources and their people around you because though your mind may say, God, you are king, your heart says, I, I want to be king. And I want people to view me that way. You see, we are gray. We're gray people, and our, our minds and our heart is in a constant battle. And that is why it's so important that we 
seek to live a life of surrender by creating a rhythm of surrender. Surrender our week and our schedule. Surrender your blessings. Surrender your opportunities. Surrender your platforms. And sometimes you have to use your mind to take that step so your heart can begin to feel the truth of what you believe. You connect those. You take those steps of seeking to give God glory and to surrender to his plan. I want to leave us with an awesome verse, a really challenging verse, and an encouraging one as well from 1 John 3. You can see it on the screen behind me. It says this, By this we know love. Here's love. That Jesus laid down his life for us. Don't let that just be in your head. Let it be in your heart. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need and yet closes his heart against them, how does God's love abide in them? Little children, it's challenging right here. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. May we prioritize surrender over success. Will you pray with me? God, we confess, I confess to you that this is a struggle. Lord, it is attractive and it is alluring to run after the praise and the honor of others. It feels nice to be idolized and complimented and praised. And God, we know that encouragement is good and there's compliments may fuel us and affirmation is important. But God, we also confess to you that Sometimes our heart desires those things and, and success and the way that other people view us and treat us as much more important than giving you glory and honor. So God, tonight I confess that I often don't surrender to you. I surrender to success. I pray tonight that, Holy Spirit, you would convict and challenge, but also encourage me and all of us here that you are patient with us, you are loving, that your love that was demonstrated on the cross would compel us and move us to to change and to walk according to what we speak and what we know with our mind that our heart would follow. Would you, God, be the king, not just of our mind, but of our heart? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.